Uppercase Brands. This is D2C WTF, the show about successful direct-to-consumer founders, their companies, the biggest mistakes they've made, and the lessons they learned along the way. I'm Jake Sukoff, and today we talk to Matt Mullinax. He's the founder and CEO of Huron. In 2017, after a successful career in finance, Matt graduated from Stanford Business School, ready to light the world on fire. There was just one problem. Despite his impressive background and a brand new shiny MBA, Matt didn't get the job offers he was hoping for. But rather than mope around and feel sorry for himself, Matt took this as a sign to pursue an idea he'd been thinking about since childhood. He decided to launch Huron, a men's personal care company. It was based on the experience that he'd had himself trying unsuccessfully to find skincare products that were affordable and worked for him. This episode is a bit different. We don't focus on one singular catastrophic failure, but we uncover some great actionable advice and I think it's going to be valuable to all founders. There's lots to like about this episode, but a few particular topics really stood out to me. The first is that as a founder, you should really try to solve a problem that you have a personal connection to. Matt grew up with bad skin and for a long time, he'd been looking for an affordable solution to this problem that he experienced daily. Starting a company where you are your own target demographic has tons of advantages, but specifically, you never have to try hard to figure out what your audience is dealing with or what they're thinking because you're dealing with the same things and you're having those same thoughts. Additionally, you form a really strong bond with your customers because you're in the trenches with them. You connect over your shared enthusiasm for figuring out the solution to this problem that you both have. Next, and in a similar vein, Matt is customer-obsessed, and it's paid off dividends for Huron. Sometimes founders can lose the forest for the trees. They get so focused on scaling their company, they forget why they started building in the first place. A good founder always remembers who they're building their company for, the customers who are struggling with the problems that they're trying to solve. When you're constantly talking to your customers, you ensure that they feel valued and heard, of course, but more importantly, you create a way to always achieve product market fit. You know exactly where the demand exists before you ever launch the product, so you're certain there's interest before you ever have to begin production. They say you shouldn't ever propose unless you know the answer is going to be yes, and introducing new SKUs is exactly the same. There shouldn't ever be any doubt because you should know the answer before you even ask the question. Finally, we talked about validating your idea before investing significantly in it. This is probably the most important advice any new founder should hear. I've seen so many people create solutions to problems that just don't exist. They jump right into dumping money into developing a product without understanding whether or not there's actually demand for it. Just because you have a problem or you think that one exists doesn't mean that it does, and it certainly doesn't mean that people are going to pay for it. We talk about a product validation methodology where you build a fake brand, spin up a landing page, and run ads to measure demand. This allows you to see if people are interested, and you can also test multiple designs, different products, and even different value propositions, so you can see what messaging people respond to and what part of the market you want to occupy. There's tons of other great insights in this show, like properly assessing risk, treating vendors like true partners, and knowing when to delegate. Needless to say, I think there's something for everyone in this episode, so I hope you enjoy. Before I start, it's, is it Mullinax? Yep. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> it's very phonetic, but at times people think I'm a prescription drug or I'm very French and I'm neither. So yeah, you, you nailed it. 
yeah, you got it. It was Mucinax, uh, Malvano. I've heard it all. So it was meant to be that you went into the uh, personal care space with that with that last name. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. All right. This is D to C W T F. It is a podcast and a web show uh, that highlights successful e-commerce brands, their founders and operators. But unlike other shows that talk about startups, we are less focused on their successes and more focused on their failures. We find that there's a lot of meat and potatoes to dig in there and you learn the most from other people's failures. So startups are really tough and we believe that uh, media today is doing the world a disservice by pretending that it's all shark tank and glory and not as much sleepless nights and pain and heartache. So to discuss entrepreneurship and his journey today, we have Matt Molinax. He's the founder and CEO of Huron. It's a men's personal care brand uh, that launched not too long ago. And I'll let him give you the 411 on that. But Matt, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it. You're a New York boy like myself. Um, would love to hear just really, really quickly about Huron, uh, when it got started, and just the 100,000-foot overview. Yeah, quickly. Um, you know, New York by way of Cincinnati and Providence and Chicago and San Francisco and Palo Alto. So I've, I've kind of done, you know, my fair share of tours. But, um, yeah, the super high-level overview. So as you noted and alluded to, Huron is a men's personal care business. Um, we try not to take ourselves too, too seriously, but we like to frame our mission as being one that helps guys help themselves, right? So how do we do that? We do that with world-class um, quality products, um, great product assortment, very clean products, but that also have a sensorial effect. So like the way you look, feel, smell, et cetera. And we try and deliver those products at approachable and fair price points. Um, kind of the, the quick backstory on, on kind of why Huron is kind of twofold. One, I felt that in a prior life as an investor, there were a lot of amazing brands doing great things on the female side and targeting the female consumer. And I thought there was still a, a window of opportunity for guys to kind of receive similar treatment, if you will. And I think secondly, and probably more personally, is I was just a kid that grew up with bad skin. So seemingly tried everything. None of that worked. Um, found myself stumbling into a kind of prestige premium personal care store, bought a few products that would probably not like to share the price points of, but little to no one's surprise, those products <clears throat> seem to do a little bit more for me than other products did. So uh, kind of connected the dots and said, you know, could we channel the former to bring it to a much broader audience? And with the help of uh, my amazing co-founder who spent decades developing products for many brands under the Estee Lauder umbrella, we were able to kind of devise uh, or develop rather a product assortment and number of products to kind of do exactly that. So we're about 16 months in market, um, about a year in development before that. So tons of learnings over the course of the last few months that I'm happy to uh, and excited to kind of dive into. So I love the story about it being personal and getting into it, but I'd really like to hear a bit more about why entrepreneurship it's it's so hard and as an investor before you saw the challenges that people had to go through and it really it, it rarely goes the way people plan so how did you decide to make that crazy leap into building a company especially one in personal care where like you said it took a year of development before you even hit the market so how did you 
how did you come to that conclusion? Yeah, you know, in a weird way, it kind of found me. Uh, you know, I was coming out of grad school and seemingly interviewing all over the place. And well, I didn't get hired. So, you know, if I would have gotten uh, an offer, maybe this would be, a, you know, a different story. But I think even going into grad school, this was an opportunity that I was excited about. I thought that, you know, overall, like, did I have a burning passion for entrepreneurship? Not necessarily, but I felt that I had the closest relationship to the end consumer in this particular category, right? Mm -hmm. So would I be a super passionate B2B dental software entrepreneur? Probably not. Um, but having kind of lived through a lot of these issues that many guys are suffering today, um, similar frustrations, similar level of product experimentation, if you will, um, I felt like the, you know, that relationship was, was closest in proximity in this category. And that's why I felt really eager and excited to kind of take the leap into an area and a, in a vertical within the DTC space where I feel like, you know, that relationship was still very, very strong. Mm -hmm. And that mission you felt so strong about that you figured, I don't care what the roadblocks are and what the barriers are. It's important that I bring this into the world. I think so. I mean, I think one of the one something that's oftentimes misconstrued about entrepreneurs is there's this like crazy unequivocal amount of risk appetite. And I actually think it's quite the opposite where, um, you know, much of the decisions that we make on a day to day basis are actually risk mitigating factors. Um, you know, I had someone tell me early on in this journey that your job as a CEO or as an entrepreneur is basically to say no to 99% of the people who reach out to you, right? It's, they're selling you some sort of marketing service or this amazing new agency that just generated, you know, just generated 800 X ROI for brand Y, you know, I mean, your job is to say, thanks, appreciate you reaching out, but not a fit. Um, and I think that's kind of like the risk mitigating piece that that's really important. And to kind of, uh, you know, tie this back to your original question. So we had launched a number of surveys um, and whatnot to kind of test out whether or not there was an opportunity to be had here. And then we actually built and launched a fake site. So we had mm. some interesting data points that would suggest there was indeed an opportunity here for really high quality products at a price point that made sense to a broader group of guys. So again, like it's still a huge leap of faith. I mean, not taking a paycheck for a year was not great. Um, but it, at the end of the day, it wasn't blind faith. We, we did have a number of data points that, that did highlight the fact that there was an audience out, out there for a brand like Huron. Mm. A lot of want to go deeper in there. First of all, you implied that I am part of the 1% of people who've gotten through to you that you are willing to speak with. So for that, I'm very grateful. So thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Um, I think you hit on something that's really interesting, which is as a species, we're not really good at assessing risk and we're far more risk averse and we see the downside far more clearly than we do the upside. And for anything we embark on, and it really is most things, our immediate thought is, how is this gonna affect us negatively? Not what is the potential upside that will improve my life significantly from this? And I think you're right, now is a great time, especially considering where we are in the world today, it's a great time to take a calculated risk. So. That yeah, really I mean, I think, with me. yeah, in, in just building off that, maybe said a little bit differently. I mean, there are a thousand reasons to say no, right? The timing's not right. Me, for me personally, like, hey, I'm just gradu graduating grad school. I'm going to be paying Stanford back until I'm 300 years old. 
um, you know, go take the easy job where you can get, you know, a good paycheck every two weeks and chip away at that debt. But, you know, you yourself can be the voice of yes. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of upside in, in taking this risk. And, um, you know, I feel fortunate in the fact that, you know, if Huron doesn't turn out the way we at all hoped and aspired to, like, I probably won't be homeless, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's being able to certainly take a calculated risk, but at the same time, there is a notion of betting on yourself and kind of being the voice of yes, where there are a bazillion reasons to say no. Totally, totally. I want to just cover one more thing before we move forward. You mentioned to validate the idea you launched a fake brand, and that's something that's been really interesting to me for a long time. I know a lot of people do this. You, uh, I think the founders of Kettle and Fire were ones who I was reading a blog about doing it recently where you create a fake brand, you put up a landing page, you put a couple hundred dollars in ads into it, and you see what the response is. Was that more or less how you ran it? Did you do anything differently? I'd love to hear your experience there. Yeah, um, maybe a few more dimensions than that. I mean, I think what we were testing was a brand receptivity. Um, secondly, we were testing a little bit of narrative around formulations. So we were testing better for you men's care versus clean men's care versus organic men's care versus all natural skin care to say like, is there actually a clear cut winner? And if so, how would that inform us on the product development side of things? So that was certainly a learning. Um, we were testing geographies as well. So knowing that there was a little bit more familiar, familiarity maybe in coastal markets, the New York's, the LA's, the SF's of the world, where there are a lot of higher end skincare brands, both on the brick and mortar side of things, but also from D2C brands targeting those audiences. You know, we wanted to say, could we resonate with folks in Columbus and Kansas City and Minneapolis and St. Louis and Charlotte and, you know, some of those air quote tier two markets, which is kind of a chip on my shoulder because I'm from Cincinnati, right? So, um, you know, our thought was there are plenty of guys in those markets who were just as in tune as maybe their coastal counterparts. They just happen to live in St. Louis and not the West Village, right? So, um, you know, there are a lot of things at play. And I think that exercise was really telling for me also, again, from a risk mitigating standpoint that it's a big market out there and there's a lot of opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and I think being able to test things across a few different dimensions, again, was kind of that third party validation for me to say, you know, I feel comfortable taking this even more calculated risk, knowing that we have kind of these data points in the back pocket. Mm -hmm. And so was that just through A-B testing with different landing pages? You mentioned a whole bunch of different potential, uh, you know, unique sales propositions there. So how did, yep. you, how so did you run through them? So, so just quickly built an incredibly basic site on Wix. I mean, I'm as far from a developer as you could possibly imagine. So I, I am being 100% honest and saying, if I can do it, literally anyone can do it. Uh, so we built up a, you know, a straw man of a site on Wix and then basically set up in uh, a Facebook and Instagram account for that URL and then ran Instagram ads targeting kind of, again, same ad that we compiled via Google images. Um, with just different text overlay and different captions. So mm -hmm. again, very, very basic, um, but basically just A-B testing messaging and then understanding where and to what extent we were resonating with these audiences. I love it. This is such an incredible blueprint for anybody who's listening. If you want to start a business, this is the absolute way to do it. You need validation. Um, hopefully we'll talk a little bit more down the line about how you build with your customers. I know that's something that you feel passionate about, but before you get started, before you think about building the actual product, investing into uh, any of the things that you need to actually make it a reality. 
you can find demand before you actually launch your product by doing this. And it is so powerful and it's so easy to do. Like Matt said, you can use Wix, you can use Squarespace. There's tons of landing page builders that are out there. You can go on to 99designs, not even go to Fiverr and find somebody to spin up a logo for you in a few days and then you'll have a fake brand and you can actually talk to prospective customers and figure out exactly what they want. I love that strategy. That's awesome. Yep. Okay, so recently, this is a good segue. You you just launched Hair. Congratulations! It's a new a new segment for you. Um, first, I'd love to hear about how did you decide? There's so many opportunities in personal care that you can go into. Why Hair? Yeah, really good question. I mean, I think for us, you know, what we committed to from day one was literally our customer as our north star, right? So. What does that mean in practice? Like it's a really great strategy to slap all over your investor deck, but what does that mean tactically? I think for us, it's oftentimes going back to your your base, your customer base and just asking, right? You would be incredibly surprised what your customer base is willing to tell you if you give them the microphone. And I think through a series of surveys that we do quarterly with our base, with our new customer base, I should say, um, you know, we just asked. You know, what a product, what products would you expect from us or what products would you want from us? Would you want the scent profile to be similar? Would you want it to be different? Would you want it to be scentless? Um, you know, I think there's a, there's a fine line between asking just the right number of questions and, and probably asking too much of your base. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that will be reflective of kind of completion rate. But I think there's still a lot of runway to be had around engaging with and building alongside of your customers. And I think we're trying to find the right way um, and the right capacity to invite that base kind of inside our brand wall, so to speak, and really help kind of attack product development together. You know, mm-hmm. hey, we, want, we would love for you to have these samples before we go to market so we can collect some early feedback. Or even earlier, you know, which do you like fragrance A or fragrance B? Or what would you look for in a conditioner? I mean, these are all data points that we've been pulling for over a year. We wrote our first hair briefs on October 2nd. Um, so, you know, we, again, with, with my partner, Matt's background, I mean, he has a really good understanding of what the, what the build and what the DNA is behind a incredibly high performing product, but there are certain, some, certainly some nuances and some novel pieces that we can learn from our base by simply asking. Um, so, yeah, so that was certainly a, a fun project, uh, definitely a lengthy one, um, you know, but we have a commitment to product development where if we are not over the moon, about a certain product, then it's not ready yet. And a lot of contract manufacturers or partners may only give you a few iterations before they'll say kind of pencils down, this is what you got. Mm. Um, and we've really kind of pushed the envelope on that because we, we are so committed to creating products in an otherwise busy category that stand out from the competition. Now, when you're collecting this data, is it primarily through post-purchase emails? Is it through pop-ups from Hotjar? Mm. How are you usually collecting it? Yeah, we usually just do basic surveys. So we have a, a type form format and we say, you know, who within the past 90 days are first time customers. And we send very personal emails um, and we say, hey, we, you know, we'd love to hear from you. And if you complete the survey, we'll toss in a free product or something mm. um, because you are asking for that very helpful set of feedback. You know, there's got to be a little bit of give on your end as well. Uh, so, you know, we, we've we've been very fortunate around the number of people who have opted in to completing these surveys and really kind of helping us out because it does 
certainly weigh on our minds heavily as we're thinking about, especially kind of the, the later innings of the product development phase, right? When we start to ask and reach out for some, um, some feedback before we ultimately go to market. Hmm. Have you experimented at all with uh, SMS texting with something like that? Not necessarily in this capacity, but we do leverage uh, the SMS platform. I think we're still kind of figuring out where our position is within SMS. I mean, phone numbers are very sacred, right? Mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know, I, I think that's probably the one thing you haven't changed since you first got your cell phone, right? Yep. Um, so we want to be very respectful of the inbox, so to speak. Um, you know, but that being said, we're still kind of figuring out what's the right cadence for us. And maybe down the road, maybe that is a wonderful platform to be able to kind of solicit feedback on, on product. Yeah, very interested in that as a medium in general. It is a new frontier. And even, I mean, texting obviously isn't new at all, but, uh, you know, having the uh, ability to leverage it as a, a sales channel is new, or at least yep. the perception that people are able to know. Yep. So you gather this information you figure out what people want next. When are you ready to actually bring in a new SKU? Um, yeah, good question. I mean, I think it's um, to some extent it's out of your hands, right? It's your, there are certain manufacturer timetables to when you can get on the production line to how quickly you can get those products to your fulfillment center. You know, I think for us, it was also a little bit of market timing. I mean, I think launching last week was interesting because we were very aware of the election and kind of the um, the emotions surrounding the election. So we kind of wanted to steer clear of that entire week. Mm -hmm. um, we were also conscious that Black Friday, Cyber Monday was also kicking off earlier than a lot of people expected. Yep. So we didn't want to miss that wave. So positioning was a little tight, but based on the receptivity that we had, uh, you know, in the first week or so, um, you know, it seemed to be a, a hit, which has been really, really exciting. That's awesome. Okay, I want to shift a little bit into, you have something you call the JET framework that I was reading about a bit that uh, seems to kind of drive you. I'd love to hear in your own words how you think about that, and is this something that's kind of now in the DNA of your company, or is it more of just, you know, it's something that's worked for a time, but not necessarily, you know, our ethos? Yeah, um, it's not just... Twitter clickbait, uh, <laughs> we could say that. I mean, I think it's something we've really infused into Huron since day one. I think it harkens back to that notion of really the customer being first, second, and third priority. Um, so JET standing for judgment, empathy, trust. Um, you know, the way that we've kind of handled CX to date, uh, we're all hands-on. And when I say all, all four of us, <laughs> we have a very small team. Um, but what my job is, is to trust that the folks around me and, and alongside of me from a team standpoint are going to exhibit great judgment, right? So it's not, I don't have to look over their shoulder or I don't have to make sure that we're, are we gifting too much? Are we not responding to this in the right way, et cetera. It's to have the confidence that they know how Huron speaks and how we act and how we do indeed put our customers first. So that's kind of the judgment piece. Second is empathy. Um, you know, for better or for worse, whether it's a, a carrier issue, whether it's a uh, fault of ours, whether for maybe our fulfillment center didn't get something out on time, that ultimately ties back to us, right? And that's a pain point. And we've all been on the opposite end of that experience. So 
for us, it's about exhibiting and exuding really strong empathy, um, acknowledging those frustrations up front that a customer may have, I think goes a long way. Um, and then lastly is the trust piece. So, you know, how do you make a six out of 10 from an experience standpoint, a 10 out of 10, how do you make a two and eight? How do you take an eight to, to a 12? And I think what we've tried to do is again, through judgment and empathy is really kind of meet the customer where he or she is at from a frustration standpoint try our best to course correct and right-size the situation case-by-case -case basis. That's where the judgment piece kind of comes in again. And what can we do to kind of reestablish the trust piece that we know is incredibly powerful, especially in today's D2C landscape where the switching costs on the customer front aren't that high, right? It mm -hmm. wouldn't take me as a consumer very long to go find another brand that might be selling similar products. Right. So for us, it's how do we kind of, um, you know, re kind of calibrate that, that mindset or that framework to say, wow, this is actually, this started off as a, a subpar experience. And I've been blown away by the level of experience that I've received thus far. Like this is the brand for me. And, you know, when we do have those mishaps and hopefully they're, they're, they're few and far between, um, you know, that's, that's an opportunity for the team to shine and, and really kind of put our money where our mouth is in terms of, you know, making our customers our North stars. Mm-hmm. You really do seem to have a deep affinity for your customers. You've talked about building with them. You and I discussed a little bit earlier. I've seen pictures of you hand-delivering products to customers, hand-writing notes to them. It's really refreshing to see somebody who's so customer-centric, and clearly that's part of your your ethos, your DNA. It's what you you know strive to to do to create a better experience than your competitors do, and that's why you're going to win, which is it's really awesome to see. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I mean, I think it's still very early innings, but, um, you know, one of the things we, we talked about, uh, beforehand was just this notion of, you know, leveraging non-scalable tactics or opportunities mm -hmm. to eventually mm -hmm. scale. Right. And coincidentally, I was, uh, pitching an investor recently and I kind of dropped that notion. He's like, Oh, well, that sounds really cute, but you know, there's, you know, that's a waste of time and whatnot. And I was like, you just don't get it. Right. Mm -hmm. Because, we live in a very automated world where there's an app, there is a service provider for everything that we could send mass emails that we could do this. We could do that. What's lost has become kind of the art of the human touch, right? It's the point of differentiation. It's the handwritten note. It's the, Hey, I'm going to text you because I'm literally outside of your apartment building with your package right now. And I'd love to take a selfie. Um, you know, th th those are things that people don't forget. Um, and I think you do those things in an early stage, because they aren't scalable, but in turn, you hopefully build a loyal base of, you know, however many hundred or thousand customers that all of a sudden make Huron their brand for life. And they're going to tell all of their friends in the process. So yeah. one of the things we try and preach, but um, you know, it, it's been fun and it's, uh, it's very authentic to us. You know, we, we do, we lean into those opportunities because we don't feel that everyone else will. And that's a point of differentiation. Mm -hmm. And like you said, for somebody to buy a different body wash next time is as simple as them navigating to a different website and clicking a button. So you really need to focus on retention. And one of the biggest competitive advantages of a direct-to-consumer uh, sales channel is that you own the brand. You own that conversation. You get to dictate how your customers interact with you and what their feeling is for you. And like you said, when you can build that affinity, that trust, so that when people 
pick up their body wash and they think of Huron, they think of Matt biking, you know, to Midtown to hand deliver soap for them. That's powerful. That's a really powerful image, and that'll stay with them for a long time. So I, I think you're absolutely right when you think about doing the the small tasks that might feel like they're beneath you to some extent, and you can really internalize that and 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 carry them out because you know that delivering an exceptional experience is going to mean that you have a customer for a long, long time. I think you set yourself up for for major, major. Uh, just victory. Yeah. Yeah. We should, I mean, we certainly hope that's the case. I mean, look, we, again, we live in a world where switching costs incredibly low. Um, but for those who are loyal to a brand, the switching costs are incredibly high. Mm. Right. So, and you know, how do we do some of those things in the early innings uh, of our brand journey to make sure that we're one of the brands that kind of fall in that ladder camp. Very well said. Okay. I want to move to, so you were one of the most prepared guests I've ever went to interview. You sent me a list of things that you could talk about. There was no singular WTF moment, but there's a few different areas that you thought we could cover that might highlight challenges that you go through as a founder of a company like this. So let's, let's start first with the benefits and curse of making your vendors, your partners. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I think we've, we've been a nimble team for a very long time. So for the first five, eight months of Huron, it was just Matt and myself Mm -hmm. um, doing everything from CX to monthly financials, to investor updates, to placing POs, to product development, to working with our fulfillment center to, I mean, it was just a lot. Um, We were fortunate enough to bring on our first employee, Johnny, uh, in March. um, And he's just been an absolute huge asset to the team. Um, But what we have to do is we have to trust and lean upon our partners incredibly heavily. And when I say partners, I, I, I actually mean that. So, you know, in, in a world where it's, it's very transactionally based from a relationship standpoint, right? You have vendors, you have clients. I can't stand either of those terms. Mm-hmm. So whenever we work with someone, I'm like, if I hear you call us a client, like that will be the last day that we work together in the same vein that I will never call you a vendor. This is our partner who handles fulfillment or manufacturing, um, maybe on the ad buying side for you know paid channels. But th- these people are partners because we're going to invite them into the walls of the brand. We're going to overshare with them about how we're doing on a number of different facets because that allows them more information to go act on our behalf proactively. So it, it's just a concept that I've kind of ingrained into this brand from the early days and, you know, knock on wood, it's worked out for the most part. Um, now there's a downside to that, which is when maybe those relationships and they don't inevitably don't pan out, right? Mm. Because you've invested a lot of time into those people. Um, and the switching costs are high. So, you know, that's, that's definitely one of the downsides, but I think, um, you know, over the first call it two years, when you kind of, uh, include the development window into things, um, you know, this mentality or this psyche or framework for how we're working with quote unquote vendors has been a huge tailwind for us. Mm. Have you had to fire any vendors yet? We have, it's not fun. I mean, it's not fun at all. I mean, those are, but those are business decisions. Um, but even looking back on some of those relationships, you know, would we treat the vendor client slash partner relationship any differently? And the answer would be no. Mm. 
How do you decide which of those to begin with? You mentioned a few. I mean, fulfillment manufacturing, obviously you need those if you want to grow at scale. Marketing, paid social, I imagine, starts to ramp up after you've already you know, built a little bit of a bedrock for you to grow off of. Are there others that you did immediately? Which ones did you wait for? What was the order of operations there? Yeah, I'm not sure if there's necessarily a blueprint around, you know, this This is the 100% must-have cadence. Um, they're, all, they're all important pieces of the puzzle. I think for all of those, especially the earlier partners, the upfront diligence is oftentimes a lot longer, mm -hmm. right? Because that's the group that will inevitably get you off the ground in that certain arena. So it's important to do that upfront legwork or diligence work. And I think that's just the end result of a ton of conversations, right? It's me reaching out to folks on Twitter or fellow business leaders that I look up to, or maybe even folks in adjacent capacities, but at similar stages, like, Hey, you're using for fulfillment or have you talked to this person or that person? Um, but those kind of the, those early partnerships that I would say are oftentimes the most important because at that point, the switching costs are the highest. Right. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how we think about that. Mm. Okay. Another area that you mentioned has been a challenge for you is learning to get out of your own way. I imagine that's a yeah. challenge for most <laughs> founders. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, challenge in the sense that I sucked at it for the first <laughs> uh, year or so. Um, I think the quicker that you're uh, aware of the areas that you're not the best at, right? Um, and can not necessarily pass off to someone else, but know your own limitations. Uh, I think the quicker you allot the opportunity for the brand to grow and scale. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, from my chair as CEO of Huron, I mean, my goal is to be the dumbest person in the room, right? When we do our weekly or daily standups or we do our kind of weekly touch base at the end of the week and kind of reflecting on the prior week and what's ahead. I mean, the first thing I do is kick it off to another team member, right? Because I, I once heard that the, uh, you know, the golden ratio was two to one, two ears, one mouth. You should be listening more than you're talking. Um, and it actually makes a ton of sense, right? Because our job as leaders is to empower the folks around us to let them do their job and for you to kind of make sure things are working correctly, but to let those people grow and scale and flourish both personally and professionally. Um, so again, I think that just circles back to the notion where it's impossible for you to do everything. As a business leader, you're going to need help, understand how to allocate those responsibilities and then kind of get out of the way. Um, there will be growing pains, there will be hurdles, there will be things that are done incorrectly, but those are learnings. And the way we talk about learnings and mistakes are, a learning is a learning, so long as it happens once. Happens twice, it's a mistake, right? Mm -hmm. So let's avoid mistakes and let's keep the learnings not costly, right? And I think we'll, we'll, we'll be fine. But um, but yeah, the, the notion of just kind of understanding personal limitations, how to delegate appropriately is um, is something that probably we could we could all get better at. And it's not to say that I'm there now, still definitely learning, but making strides in that direction. Definitely. Combining that with your last point about vendors and partners, how are you thinking about growth? Are you getting close to bringing on more people? At what point is it 
time to really put the pedal to the metal in bringing more people in who can be specialists rather than be a scrappy startup team where every team member is doing five different jobs? Good question. Um, we're not there yet. I think that you know we're we're always looking at great talent, right? Um, because the moment you need to hire someone, it's probably too late. And the moment that you're just kind of like passively in market is you're probably not going to find folks who are that driven because you're not that driven. So, you know, we're always evaluating, but we would like to stay as lean and mean as long as possible. I mean, for us, it's, again, it's hiring really smart people and empowering them across a number of different verticals within the business and getting out of the way, right? Like let, let them do their thing. Um, let's, course correct when things aren't going well or if a, a mistake is made or a learning is to be had. But other than that, like we're here to move fast. We're here to learn um, and we're here to get better every day. I love that. I want to end on that. That was a great, that was a great, great note. I have one or two things that we can cover after that, but I think that'd be a good stopping point. Um, Matt Mullinax, founder and CEO of Huron. I keep wanting to say skincare, but it's not. Is it said personal care. Personal care. care. I mean, perfect. Um, what's what's in the future? What do we have coming down the pipeline? Can you share any any sneak peeks? Can't can't share, unfortunately, but a lot of great products that we've again really developed alongside of with our community, which we're super excited about. Um, yeah, and, and a lot of interesting things to come. I'm not going to ask for you to confirm or deny, but there's a lot of very expensive beard oils out there that I want to try and I can't, they're too expensive, but, but just putting that on your radar. Got it. We'll um, add it to the pipeline. Where can people find Huron? So URL is just usehuron.com and we're on all the socials at the same handle. So just at use Huron, but you know, I'm hopefully I'm aware enough to, to realize that I've gotten here uh, by the help of many. So always, willing to answer questions, um, quick thoughts around X, around Y. I mean, that's kind of the entrepreneurial journey and you're always kind of paying it forward. So if anyone has any questions, feel free to email me. I'm just mad at useyearon.com. I'm sure everybody appreciates that. Thanks for that. Uh, anything else you want to you wanna speak to? Shout out one big piece of advice for anybody. Anything else? Jeez. Um, I mean, we covered a lot. Uh, but look, I, I guess, you know, parting words is, you know, it's meant to be fun, right? Every day is totally different from the day before. Um, but as so long as each day is maybe one little bit better than the day before, then you're trending in the right direction. So it's, it's, it's one day at a time. Well said. Again, thanks very much, Matt, for being here. Uh, Huron, it looks, in, I love the brand, really. It's, it's minimalist and simple. I love the messaging. Although I will say I keep seeing you're looking out for the guy in the mirror, and I'm not sure why it's not the man in the mirror. I don't know if that's that's relevant or we not. We debated but... that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, uh, Jake. Good luck with the upcoming holiday season, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Appreciate it. This episode of DTC WTF was brought to you by Uppercase Brands. Uppercase Brands is a technology-backed e-com agency that's offering bold solutions for brands rated at 10x their growth. As a busy founder, your job is to focus on getting your products into the hands of the people who love them. Let Uppercase focus on building your website and acquiring customers. 
Built by former Facebook and Google employees, Uppercase Brands has deep technical experience and is always focused on what's most important, building sustainable growth engines to increase their clients' revenues. They specialize in custom Shopify development, paid ad management, and conversion optimization. In an effort to give back to the Shopify community, Uppercase is picking one lucky merchant to build a full suite of Facebook and Instagram ads for. Apply by visiting www.uppercasebrands.com slash DTCWTF. Again, www.uppercasebrands.com slash DTCWTF.